Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Today, we get to talk about, in honor of May's Mental Health Month, a bit of mental health history about what's going on in our country now and how marginalized groups within our country might be treated differently. I'm excited today to talk about something timely. Ever since 1949, the month of May has been designated Mental Health Month by an organization called Mental Health America. And it's pretty important, actually. I think a lot of times there's a stigma around it, but it's really important to think about Mental Health Month because one in five people will be affected by mental illness in their lifetime. One in 25, which is 10 million adults in the U.S. lives with a serious mental illness. And in terms of, you know, one of the things that are near and dear to our hearts, Misasha, half of all lifetime mental health conditions begin by age 14. I mean, we're talking about the kids in our society. 75% of the time it happens by 24 and early intervention programs can help. And so for us as parents too, I think it's really important to be mindful of it, not just for ourselves personally, but in terms of things for our children, because we've mentioned it in past episodes, but the rates of suicide, and I'm so I'm going to go a little dramatic here, right? But that's the extreme end manifestation of some individuals who are really hurting. And we've talked about it before, but rates of suicide in this country are skyrocketing and it is gutting, right? In the United States, for people aged 15 to 24, suicide is the second leading cause of death. In certain states, though, like in the state of Colorado, suicide is the leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 24. And keep in mind, that is an average. There's a lot of nuances in there based on some of the conversations we have. Historically, suicide rates in the United States have been higher for whites than blacks across all age groups. And that does remain the case for adolescents, sort of teenage years, age 13 to 17. White teens continue to have a 50% higher rate of suicide than black teens, with the second leading cause of death for black individuals, 15 to 24, is actually homicide, not suicide, which is frightening also. But here's what's striking in our research that we did, right? Researchers at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Ohio found that the rates of suicide for black children ages 5 to 12 exceeded that of young whites. And this was for both boys and girls over the last few years. I just have such a hard time with this study. I mean, this just came out too within the past couple of weeks. And if you think about that age range, ages five to 12, I mean, my youngest is almost five. And to think that this kid who still sleeps with his red dog, which is creatively named Red Doggy, (laughs) could take his own life is heartbreaking. It is. So between 1999 and 2015, so over those 16 years, more than 1300 children ages five to 12 took their own lives, according to the CDC. I mean, that translates into an average of one child age 12 or younger dying by suicide every five days. And the pace has actually accelerated in recent years. Five to 12, right? That is uh, just shattering. Yes. Shattering. And yet there's still so much stigma around mental illness and around discussing mental health. I mean, how many times, right? I have art friends. I go to the World Happiness Summit. They're like, you're going to go to what? Like, it's dismissed (laughs) as an insignificant thing. But we need to talk about it, especially for our kids. There's so much different in how we connect with our kids and how they connect with each other than what we did growing up. And the numbers they're facing for homicide and suicide are terrifying, just blatantly. They're just terrifying. But so to have the discussion out in the open, let's talk a little bit about what's mental health, what's mental illness. And the thing I often say is 
that mental health doesn't simply mean the absence of mental illness. I think, I mean, tell me if you agree, but I think there's a whole field of people who are like, meh, kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Right? People who... Totally. Right? They're not like, yes, life's awesome. I'm really thriving and I feel great. It's just kind of like I'm going through my day. And people in that meh might be more susceptible to mental illness if we don't learn from and incorporate the things that science has shown bolster our well-being as human beings, right? There's a sense of community and connections, purpose, this whole field of positive psychology that I love, the science of happiness. We can take tools from it and build resilience because life happens, right? We get jolted around, but only a part of our happiness is dictated by our circumstances. So it's critical to have in place some of the things we know to be true to bolster our mental wellness, our mental health. And then mental illness, the opposite of mental health, has a huge range, and it shows up in so many different ways. I think it's frightening how people tiptoe around it or like quick to be like, no, 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 that's not me, and yet don't understand fully what it means. And I think one of the biggest things, I mean, there's so many different manifestations of mental illness, but the one I wanted to talk about in more sort of detail is anxiety disorders, which are different than stress. I think we, everyone feels stress, right? But the idea of, is stress is from a known source. You're on a tight deadline or the kids won't listen. I mean, I've been there. I've been stressed, right? Yes. <laughs> you can get angry, you're sad or irritable, right? So on the other hand, anxiety is a specific feeling of dread, fear. It might not have a particular trigger, but it's that sense of like you wake up and you feel really anxious for no particular reason is different than stress. And once your brain encounters that threat in whatever that might be that's triggering that, it actually is a physiological reaction. It actually releases a surge of chemicals like cortisol into your body. And these chemicals give you a boost in reflex time, perception, and speed, right? It's that fight or flight. It causes your heart to pump faster to get more blood and oxygen through your body. You go into like the oh my gosh, there's a saber-toothed tiger. I'm going to be attacked. I need to go run and hide. Anxiety can stem from chronic stress. So I think in nowadays, so many people are under a sense of stress a lot. But if you consistently have a surge of stress hormones running through your body, you are at a higher risk for developing generalized anxiety. And then you get to a stage, people with anxiety disorder respond to certain objects or situations with that sense of fear. And Things that fall into this are things like OCD, panic disorders, phobias, right? It is so important to keep us alive back in the day where there were physical threats to our life or in our day-to-day -day lives now, for sure. But in excess, it really can wreak long-term damage onto your body. If you have chronic stress, you can have a weakened immune system, weight gain, heart disease. And new research, I mean, it's talking about like actual structural degeneration of parts of your brain. So it really, like, isn't that crazy? It, it Stress affects your brain. It's a body and brain thing. So, I, sorry, going back to that, like if it affects your brain, the wear and tear caused to your brain by chronic stress or anxiety can be tied to an increased risk of depression and dementia. Like it's this longer term effect of the things we're doing day to day. So it's important to know that that's one part of it, right? chronic stress, weakened immune system, weight gain, heart disease, among a lot of other issues. I think it's really important that we're talking about this too in the scope of mental health, because I agree. I think that when people look at mental health and look at mental health disorders, we have such a negative and large conception of what that 
entails that we don't focus on things like chronic stress or anxiety in the same way. And I think that one of the differences between sort of the white majority and minorities in this country is how you experience chronic stress maybe from different sources. And for minorities, and we're going to be talking about this later on, microaggressions Mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of that constant barrage of how you're being treated and smaller discriminatory statements can really have that effect. And I think we've seen, you know, this appear in when we parse out health challenges by minority groups. Mm -hmm. And one of the top The American Psychiatric Association had created a list of what are the top physical characteristics for black health challenges. And I think it's interesting to note and somewhat scary as well that the death rate for African-Americans is higher than whites for a whole host of diseases and issues, heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, influenza, pneumonia, diabetes, HIV and AIDS and homicide. Right. I mean, and some of that, I don't know, right? But some people have speculated that might come from the stress of walking through life day to day, feeling constantly threatened and receiving threats and looking out for your safety all the time. Right. right? Or at least that's not helping it. Right. right. For sure. And it's interesting. I mean, there's so many different types of mental illnesses, right? We talked about anxiety disorder. There's other stuff like ADHD, eating disorder, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, addictions. And I guess in this point, I really wanted to focus on that for just a moment, if that's cool. But one of the biggest antidotes to feeling a sense of helplessness is connection. And of course, there is mental illness, right? There's diagnosed mental illness, there's suspected mental illness. But and if there if you're in that range, or you know, somebody please seek professional help, we are absolutely not giving advice in any way, shape or form, we are not medical professionals. And I do want to say, I bet the lawyer and you really like that, right? The disclaimer. I did. Thank you. I did. Yes. (laughs) But I want to really focus. I want to share this study. This is mind blowing to me because, for example, addiction, one manifestation of certain mental illness and one that can also spiral someone further towards deeper mental illness is addiction. And it's not some of the studies have shown it's not about necessarily the pleasurable effect you get from substances or doing those addictive behaviors it actually might reveal something about your inability to connect in healthy ways with other human beings, to respond to what's missing or traumatic, to have a lack of community. And one study said even that addiction may not be a substance disorder, it's a social disorder. Because they were saying that only about 10% of people who try a potentially addictive substance eventually become addicted. The rest of the people either walk away from the substance or continue to enjoy it casually or recreationally, which I was like, for real? I mean, that's interesting. I would have thought, I mean, with all the drug programs that we had in elementary school growing up, I'm like, no, don't touch it. Like, but that's what some of the studies are showing. Yeah, that's completely not at all what I had expected. Right. So get this. This is, they call it the Rat Park Experiment. And to go over it really quickly, there was a Canadian psychologist named Bruce Alexander who looked at some studies where rats were placed in empty cages alone with two bottles of water to choose from. They were given one with pure water and one with heroin-infused water. As time passed, the rats would get uniformly hooked and eventually OD on heroin. So they just said, well, they liked the pleasure of the substance, and so it's addictive, right? Bruce Alexander 
took it a step further and he created this rat park, which was a cage about 200 times larger than those typical isolation cages. And they had hamster wheels and balls to play with and tasty food to eat and spaces for mating. And he put not one rat in the cage, but 20 of both genders into the cage. In that setting with a community full of other rats, he offered one bottle of pure water and one bottle of heroin water. And guess what happened? The rats ignored the heroin. They were more interested in typical communal rat activities, which it does gross me out a little bit, but like they were playing, <laughs> they were fighting, they were eating, they were mating, right? So with a little bit of social stimulation and connection, the addiction disappeared. Even rats who'd previously been isolated and sucking on the heroin water left it alone once they were introduced to the rat park. I think that's fascinating. Isn't it interesting? Right? And then you drag that, not drag it forward, but like if you draw the parallel to alcoholics anonymous to AA or addiction treatment communities. I think they've realized that for a long time, even before this rat park experiment, right? The 12-step recovery programs, formalized addiction treatment programs, after that detox period, they involve connecting to other people, like safe, supportive, reliable, empathetic people. It's a huge part of the recovery process. Whether it's the addiction causing the mental illness or not, it's a really critical part of mental health is that sense of connection. So going back to the suicide statistics, this is where it's interesting that, you know, we talked about the age range of kids five to 12. A psychiatrist quoted in this article said, and this is his opinion with an asterisk, right? But just as a point to consider the age five to 12 range, he says, is more related to developmental issues and the possible lack of a family network, social network, and cultural activities. I mean, this is a clinical associate professor at the MIU School of Medicine, right? He was not involved in it. He was just watching the research. But he also points out with the introduction of social media, there's more isolation with children, not as much neighborhood play. Kids are more socially in in their own vacuum. And so if they're growing up in that environment, could they perhaps be the most vulnerable population right now, given our societal structure and the availability of technology? And yet adults, right? You and I are both like, what? The kid who plays with a red puppy, no way. They can't feel that bad. (laughs) Adults are very quick to dismiss the despair that kids that age might actually be experiencing. And so, again, going back to this point of community and mental health. I think this is so important to talk about. Again, I know I sound like a broken record because I think I've said that now. And I've definitely been nodding along as you've been talking about all of this. But I think what's so important to consider here is that if community is really what allows us to address addiction and to sort of reverse that and reverse some mental health issues, then what happens when you are outside of the community or when you are part of a group that has been marginalized or is made to feel the other? So let's talk about how it's different in those scenarios, how it's different for Black people, for LGBTQ people, for anyone else who's been marginalized. And I would really like to start with LGBTQ individuals, because I think that and the research that you pulled, Sarah, has been just eye opening about this, because LGBTQ individuals are more than twice as likely as heterosexual men and women to have a mental health disorder in their lifetime. And I want to stop here and say that to be absolutely 100 percent clear, we are not in any way 
saying, and all major professional mental health organizations have affirmed that homosexuality is not a mental disorder. Being transgender or gender variant is not a mental illness and does not imply any impairment in judgment, stability, reliability, or general social or vocational capabilities. So we are talking about LGBTQ individuals having a mental health disorder. And what's that population look like? So approximately 9 million U.S. adults, which is almost 4% of our population, identify themselves as lesbian or gay. So that's 1.7%. Bisexual, 1.8%. Or transgender, 0.3%. And about 19 million Americans, or 8.2%, report engaging in same-sex sexual behavior. That's interesting, just to point out the disparity in numbers between the number of people who identify a certain way versus engaging in the behavior and not putting that label on themselves. And what is the difference? I don't know the answer to it, but I find that interesting. I mean, that's a 10 million person difference. I do too, right? That is fascinating. And But I think what is hard to come to terms with is that according to the Center for Social Equity, which is a nonprofit based in South Carolina, 74% of LGBTQ youth say they do not feel safe in the schools they attend. So that's almost 75% of young people who identify as LGBTQ don't feel safe at school. Many students don't feel comfortable telling their teachers about the bullying they experience because they fear it will lead to more bullying. They don't bring it up with their parents because they don't want to deal with questions they might not be ready or able to even answer. So if we're going back to the discussion about community and the importance of community, where is that community for youth who identify as LGBTQ? I think that there was a great quote by Pierre-Antoine Louis in the New York Times, and it said, I was fighting both racism and homophobia while also trying to figure out who I was. So a minority man who identified as LGBTQ or as gay. I bottled up all my emotions, hoping that someone would notice how much pain I was in and hear my cry for help. Sadly, for some of us, that cry is never heard. I mean, equally heartbreaking, right? Well, and there was a death, right? Because I think that article was in response to the death by suicide for a high school freshman who was young, black, a boy, man, boy, I don't know, young, child. who basically a child. Was very comfortable with his sexuality, but was not comfortable at school. And I think in that article, they said nearly 43% of gay, lesbian, and bisexual high school students have seriously considered attempting suicide compared to about 15% of their heterosexual counterparts. Nearly 43%. And that's crazy. And that was according to a national survey done in 2015 of more than 15,000 students. So if you think about that number, that is also eye-opening and heartbreaking at the same time. Because that the survey that was conducted, which was by the CDC, it also showed that more than 34% of gay, lesbian, and bisexual teens reported being bullied on school property within the previous 12 months, compared to about 19% of their heterosexual peers. And just think about, you know, I remember high school, even though I've tried to block that out. <laughs> and think about how tough life was in high school to begin with, let alone if you're being bullied about your sexual identity. Separately, more than 60% of students who identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual reported feeling sad or hopeless, compared to about 27% of straight students. That's so hard. I mean, it's a hard enough period of time, and to feel that sense of despair 
at that age. And again, talking about like the more the brain and neuroplasticity, but the grooves that you groove in your brain, the, the more sad you are, the more susceptible you are to it going forward in your life too. And these are children who are right. still within the safe confines in theory of like family structure. They're living with their family. And I guess that's where this next part is really scary. Right. I think when you're dealing with sexuality in high school, and especially if you're identifying as LGBTQ and you might not be out yet to your family or still be trying to figure out where you fit in this spectrum, really, the 2018 LGBTQ youth report stated that 78% of youth not out to their parents as LGBTQ hear their families make negative comments about LGBTQ people. Can you imagine that if you're, you believe this to be true or maybe true about you and your parents are saying something that is directed at you, they just don't know that that's your truth. Right. And if they knew, like it reveals in some ways, kids would be like, well, that reveals how they truly feel about this population and possibly me, right? Because they said only 24% of LGBTQ youth can definitely, quote, be themselves as an LGBTQ person at home. Only a quarter of the kids, they don't feel comfortable being at home. So the talking about, again, the lack of community, the lack of being seen and supported and feeling like they can be honest and open and be themselves in close relationships, that's really scary. Yeah, I can't imagine. I feel like that is something that when you have a total lack of community, you know, you're being bullied in high school, you're, you might not be out to your parents who are making some comments about what they perceive LGBTQ people to be like. I mean, it's no wonder that based on this study, 95% of LGBTQ youth report they have trouble getting to sleep at night. And 73% of the same youth have experienced verbal threats because of their actual perceived LGBTQ identity. It's just a hard way to have to live life when you're being true to who you are, right? Right. And want to be recognized for who you are and valued for who you are. Mm -hmm. And it looks like similarly, it's not just tied to youth alone. LGBTQ older adults face a number of unique challenges, including this combination of stigma against them for being LGBTQ and ageism. So when you're looking at that older group, it looks like, based on HRC reports, approximately 31% of LGBTQ older adults report depressive symptoms, and 39 report serious thoughts of committing suicide. And I know the phrase is supposed to be die by suicide now, because you're not committing crime by taking your own life. Yes. Just saying, because they do, I read somewhere that said it's much more, I don't know what the terminology is, respectful to say die by suicide as opposed to committing something. Just that so makes you know, sense. Right? That makes sense. And I think I didn't mention it in this episode. I don't know if I've mentioned it in the past, but my favorite study is the Harvard Grant study that followed men for almost 80 years now. And they had found the biggest predictor of their long-term health and happiness was the quality of their close relationships. And that can change over time and through different phases of life. But if your health and happiness is so dependent on that small, like the circle of people you keep and the people who know you... It's so important for everybody to reach out and form those connections, both for themselves and to make sure other people around them are feeling connected as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Because moving from the LGBTQ community or lack thereof for individuals, then moving to Black people in the United States, where they make up 13.3% of the U.S. population. And to continue on with some of the facts that we started talking about from the American Psychiatric Association, mental health and care for mental health can be really, and this may seem obvious, but not really thought about. It's really 
related to ability to pay, especially in our country, and the ability to get that care. About 27% of black people in this country live below the poverty level compared to about less than 11% of non-Hispanic whites. So that's a large disparity. And then you've got also approximately 11% of African Americans are not covered by health insurance compared with about 7% for non-Hispanic whites. And then you have, when you look at the rates of mental illnesses between communities and minority groups, the rate of mental illness among black people are similar with those of the general population. But African-Americans often receive poor quality of care. I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later in another episode, too, and lack access to culturally competent care. Because remember, a lot of the care that we receive is based on sort of what has been the stereotypical American experience. And a lot of times that is the white narrative. Right. Well, because going back to like just when you just said about competent care, that's what really jumped out at me. This stuff about being less likely to be offered evidence-based medication therapy or psychotherapy. There's a lot more likelihood of being put into an inpatient service. They're much more likely compared, even if they have the same symptoms, African-Americans are more frequently diagnosed with schizophrenia and less frequently diagnosed with mood disorders, right? And so the way that the doctors are perceiving their black patients is often different, even if it's the same symptoms. Right. Well, and I thought what was particularly startling, but not that surprising, was that black people with mental health conditions, particularly schizophrenia, which, as we've just talked about, could be more or overdiagnosed, bipolar disorders or other psychoses are more likely to be incarcerated than people of other races. So even if you're looking to seek treatment for mental health, of which only one in three African-Americans are receiving the treatment that they need who need that treatment, you might be facing incarceration. So where's the benefit for you and even trying to look for help or getting into a program which could help you when people are unwilling or perhaps ill-equipped to handle specific issues that might be unique to you? Right. And beyond all of the barriers, you know, about that we just talked about, there's like a stigma. I think that is one of the things Yes. too. And I think, you know, when you think about our own experiences growing up as biracial, right? Both of us are half Japanese. On the Japanese side, you don't process. I remember growing up in that. It's not like you talk about your mental health. Like you just sort of get on with it. And I remember talking to my grandmother in one hand being like, I mean, she was a post-war survivor and remembers experiencing that. And she's like, you just pull on your boots and carry on and you pick up and you move on. Like you don't spend time dwelling on it. And I'm probably the total opposite where I (laughs) dwell on and process and am fascinated by the psychology of stuff. But there's a cultural stigma in Japan, right? Yeah, I was told that basically, if you had a mental health issue, you didn't leave your house, you were going to be sort of a shut in for the rest of your life, because that's how you were going to be treated with in Japanese society where they didn't have a place to handle that. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge stigma in even broaching that subject, because no one wants to be stuck in their home for the rest of their lives. Right. So you carry on and you go do the things, right? Yes. And it seems based on conversations I've had, you know, and reportedly, the stigma in the black community about either seeking mental help because you just sort of get on with it. This is all based on a TEDx talk that I heard Philip Roundtree. It was 
phenomenal. He has a shirt that he wears that it says Black Mental Health Matters. I mean, he talks about his own experiences coming from a family with the lineage, the genetics that predisposes them to mental illness and the struggle both internally and how you're supposed to show up when you're a Black man experiencing the trauma that sometimes you experience at the loss of a brother or this sort of stuff. I mean, he was saying himself that there can be a stigma. And on top of that, people will judge you. If a black man expresses anger or frustration or despair, there's going to be judgment in a different way than if a white person did that. Completely. And I think you have, you know, a general distrust of healthcare providers who either don't look like you or are going to make those judgments. So not only is there the stigma, there's the barriers once you even, if you can get past that stigma and address that, then you've got those issues of distrust of the healthcare system. You've got a lack of providers who look like you or who are from diverse backgrounds or even who understand the cultural issues that you might be facing. And then, of course, like we discussed, you know, lack of insurance, underinsurance, not being able to pay for the care that you need. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And I think, again, in honor of Mental Health Month, I think if we can just all agree to look out for one another a little bit more, to consider a different perspective that maybe the person next door is not going through life the same way you are and could use someone just checking in and asking genuinely, how are you doing? Not just like, how are you? Fine. And moving on, having a conversation, connecting with another human being. I think even if we can do that and just open our eyes to the possibility that we are all on this spectrum of mental illness up to mental health, and there's a whole range in between, and we're all doing the best we can, but not with the same resources, access, or experiences in handling those things. Completely. Building our communities that include everyone, I think it's really important, and also to recognize that everyone has a different narrative, and to be conscious of different narratives that result from all of our differences. It's going to be so important in really creating those ties between each of us. All right. Enjoy the rest of May, folks. 